Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar and a special guest. Today we're privileged to have our friend Kate Shaw, who's a professor of law at Cardozo Law School and also a colleague of ours in the sense that she's a podcaster as well on the well-known podcast uh, Strict Scrutiny, uh, along with uh, Lee Littman and uh, Melissa Murray. Um, so this podcast also airs, I guess, every week, right? And has for, for quite a while now. It's very, quite popular and uh, actually popular with us. I listen to it too. And uh, so, you know, um, Kate was uh, uniquely, is uniquely qualified, I think, to help us in our discussion on Moore versus Harper that we've been engaged in over the last couple of weeks. But let me just give you a little bit more of her background here just, just quickly. Um, you know, Kate attended... Uh, Brown University, and then uh, went to law school at Northwestern, where she was magna cum laude in order of the coif, and she was editor-in-chief of the Northwestern Law Review. And then she very, very cannily uh, won the John Paul Stevens Award, um, which was a very good thing to do because she then later clerked for Justice uh, John Paul Stevens after clerking for uh, Judge Richard uh, Posner on the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals in the Seventh Circuit. Um, and uh, definitely we'll be wanting to talk about her, her, her clerkship. Um, and she's had scholarly work appear all over the place, including uh, Columbia Law Review, Cornell Law Review, Texas Law Review, and so forth. And her, she writes in uh, popular outlets, including the New York Times and uh, the Take Care blog. She edited a book, Reproductive Rights and Justice Stories, with Reva Siegel and her uh, podcast colleague, Melissa Murray. She's, you can find her on ABC News as well as the podcast that I mentioned, and she's a public member on the Administrative Conference of the United States. So welcome to America's Constitution, Kate Shaw. Thank you, Andy and Akil. It's good to be with you. So uh, let's get hey, right... Kate. Ah, Akil's here. Good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's get right into it. You know, we've been talking about Moore versus Harper, and we had the privilege of attending Moore versus Harper, and... Kate Shaw was at Moore versus Harper oral arguments as well. So, um, you know, three hours, much longer than I think the oral arguments were when, when you were a clerk. Isn't that right? They've really expanded since they changed the format of the oral arguments. Um, and I think that, you know, Chief Justice Roberts is sort of famously a little bit more lenient in allowing advocates to continue if he thinks there is you know, fruitful engagement happening. Um, to my mind, they're going a little bit long, quite honestly. But yeah, it was over three hours. Um, and I hadn't been to arguments at the Supreme Court since before the pandemic. So um, it was pretty fascinating to be back in the building, um, you know, and to see the newly constituted court. I hadn't seen the newest member, Justice Jackson, in action. She was formidable during this argument, as she has basically been in every argument since she joined the court. Um, and, you know, the dynamics among the new configuration of justices are very, very new. So it's a really important case. So I was happy to be there for that. But it was also pretty fascinating just sociologically to be able to observe them on the bench together. Mm. And rem and remember, just pick, picking up on Kate's point that John Roberts, before he was Chief Justice Roberts, before he was Judge Roberts, was the preeminent appellate lawyer, Supreme Court lawyer of his generation. He he likes oral argument. He's He's good at it and he's encouraging it. And of course, he was the head of the, the Supreme Court litigation at uh, Hogan Lovells, and the current uh, person to hold that position, Neil Katyal, was one of the uh, oral advocates uh, in, in this case. And there was a lot of that going around, as we talked about with all the solicitor, former solicitor gener solicitors general um, and, and so forth. So, all right, well, so you sat through the case, you heard what we heard, and uh, at the end, I'd like to talk to you about how you feel each of the justices sit you know, to the degree that they showed their cards or that uh, or that you're aware of their sort of priors. When the case was over, let's go through the justices one at a time. Maybe you can tell me whether where you think they are and if you think that's different than where you thought they were coming in. Perhaps they didn't change their minds, but you may have changed their mind, your mind about where they are. Sure. So let's start with some so, of the easier ones, you know, or uh, how about Justice Gorsuch? You know, so you're putting me on the spot here, Andy. My podcast, we tend to avoid making these predictions, not because it's not sort of interesting or useful. And I don't think it's because we're afraid that we're going to be wrong, um, although it obviously is always a hazardous business guessing how the justices will come down. But, um, I, you know, I, I don't, I genuinely don't know. I'm happy to speculate with you, but, um, but enormous grain of salt. Um, I think, um, 
I think that Gorsuch seemed, you know, receptive to some version of the ISLT. And obviously now I apologize, I haven't listened to the full, you know, you've done two episodes on the podcast already. And I think I listened to the full first one and a little bit of the second one. So I'm not sure how much you've covered this, but we're happy about um, that. (laughs) Um, But Gorsuch Gorsuch was receptive to some version, I think, of the ISLT. And I think Gorsuch was leaning heavily on what I think Neil Katyal correctly observed was a convenient historical account that sounded in the abusive use of state constitutions in order to thwart access to voting and some concern that somehow state courts in cahoots with state constitutional provisions would thwart legislatures in their efforts to actually facilitate the franchise and democracy. And he sort of pointed to a couple of historical episodes that I think Kachil fairly effectively demonstrated Gorsuch was either misrepresenting or being sort of sold a false bill of goods about. Um, But in either event, I expect that Gorsuch will lean heavily on some historical account, or at least try to. I mean, as I think you guys have, have said pretty clearly, the historical record here is not a favorable one for proponents of the ISLT. It just isn't. Um, So you might imagine that Gorsuch will run away from history and just lean on the text of the Constitution, um, which of course does use the term legislature. Um, or he might try to deploy some selective use of history. But, it, you know, whichever route he takes, I expect him to offer some support for some version of an ISLT. Um, now, to take a step back, I actually don't know that even Gorsuch um, was interested in embracing some really absolute version of the ISLT that would displace all state actors beyond the kind of formal legislature from participating in any way in the regulation of federal elections. Um, And in some ways that's because, and I've said this on my own podcast and and I've written it, um, you know, the proponents of the ISLT actually weren't making an argument that would have, you know, displaced, say, governors from their participation in, you know, vetoing or signing state laws that pertain to, you know, elections, including federal elections, because, you know, states typically just regulate elections. They don't demarcate federal elections versus state or local elections. Um, But in any event, the fact that uh, the Smiley case that, you know, uh, permitted a gubernatorial veto when it came to the regulation of federal elections um, wasn't actually an issue in the case, right? So the proponents of the theory were willing to accept Smiley. And I do think there's an interesting question about, you know, whether Gorsuch and maybe even Barrett at a few points might have signaled interest and having someone come back to them with an argument that was even more aggressive, that looked more like John Eastman's amicus brief, which did say the court should reconsider potentially overrule cases like Smiley and return to this really austere, formalistic conception of the elections clause that really just you know said legislature means legislature and governors don't have a role to play. But here I think it's hard to see reaching further than the advocates were seeking um, to embrace some kind of maximalist version of the ISLT. But so so what would Gorsuch kind of endorse substantively? I think the difficulty in sort of even articulating what that would look like is illustrative of the kind of internal incoherence and illogic of the position that this ISLT is a thing in the world. Um, but, you know, you might say something like, or he might say something like, the language of the elections clause has to mean something, right? Federal, the, you know, laws that regulate federal elections are just distinct from the perspective of the federal constitution. And so the legislature has to have a kind of primacy that, you know, kind of concurrently limits the ability of, of state courts to intercede at all. And so state courts can only act in these very modest ways, Um you know, to enforce clear constitutional provisions, but not sort of broad or vague ones, even though that theory actually didn't seem to get a whole lot of support during the oral argument. But I think he might say, um, this theory is real. Um, and, uh, and that would be, you know, significant. It's, you know, it's, it, 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 it the, that embrace of it, not in the shadow docket, which Gorsuch, you know, has engaged in before, but in a real merits case like this, uh, would be significant. And honestly, the fact that I can't quite tell you what it would sound like, what it would write like, again, maybe my failure of imagination, but I also think is reflective um, of the difficulty in articulating a principled version of this theory, honestly. So that's, that's sorry, that's a long answer, but that I think is maybe where Gorsuch is. Um, you know, maybe I would put Barrett and Alito maybe there as well, although, um, as I think you guys discussed, there was this kind of distinction offered by Thompson, who was the, you know, arguing for the proponents of the ISLT between substance and procedure. And uh, Barrett was, you know, particularly dismissive of 
kind of the the you know coherence of that idea. Um, but I don't know that she was quite ready to reject wholesale this ISLT as, as, as something real that flows from Article 1 of the Constitution. So, Kate, that was a long answer, but it was a really good and substantive one, and, and thanks. And I think uh, Andy and I, in our last episode in particular, share your general sense that Justice Gorsuch is going to try to emphasize in a very flat-footed way, you called it formalistic. Um, I'm a formalist, so I actually don't think that, um, that, 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 that um, I, I call it flat-footed because there are different kinds of formalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and for any clerk out there, for any justice out there who's remotely tempted, and this includes you, Justice Gorsuch, with, very, with due respect, and who's tempted to go down that path, Please listen to our last episode, because in our last episode, we explain why that cannot be right when you really think of it all the way through, because it would have radical implications for gubernatorial vetoes, for example. And so and the, and there's a different way of thinking about it that makes much more sense of, of the data. And Justice Gorsuch, I, we, I agree with you, Kate. Um, he's only at this point able to see the duck, but there's also a rabbit if you if you um, unfocus um, your, your mind and, and try to look at it a different way. And and both the duck and the rabbit actually are formalistic from a certain point of view. Um, but so I, I, um, thanks for that answer. That was great. What you proposed in your answer was something we didn't really discuss was the possibility that they might that that the justice could go even more extreme than the oral oral advocates, which seemed you know unlikely as you said. But, but in fact, it points to something in ISL, which is that you once you don't do that, the inconsistencies are so glaring that it becomes difficult to come up with, with anything coherent. And that's really, I think, why we had a three-hour argument, um, is that they were not willing to, to you know, accept anything close to the, an extreme version. And therefore, you try to draw a coherent line, and it becomes very, very difficult. Even our friends sometimes were making concessions and offering middling positions, uh, Neil and Verley and uh, uh, Prelogger, that, that I found actually slightly unfortunate. And I would actually have a cleaner position, which is actually a formalist position that might appeal to a, a formalist, but that doesn't actually get into this uh, some of these morasses of, of, of halfway things, substance procedure, vague, not vague, state constitutions versus state laws, really high, but but not stratospheric. There were just all sorts of things that were said, um, trying to accept the Rehnquist concurrence in, in, in Bush versus Gore, rather than saying, basically, it was wrong, saying, oh, a state constitution couldn't actually give everything to a state court if it wanted to by calling the state court the state legislature, which I think it could, and which formalism actually suggests that it could, formalism from a certain point of view, which the Arizona case suggests that it could, with Calder versus Bull, suggests that it could. So this problem of, of middle positions, truthfully, um, was, I think, a problem, as we explained in our last episode, on, on both sides of, of, the, um, of the litigation. Among the lawyers, I agree with that, and and I think that in some ways, you know, the most effective advocate for, in terms of kind of eviscerating the ISLT, sort of start to finish, was Justice Jackson, who I think Agreed. was the most hundred percent, hundred percent. Thank you, liberal originalism. <laughs> okay, so so as Kate knows Kate knows those are fighting words, but but anyway, we'll so, get there. <laughs> so as we're going down the the justice now, you you launched us onto Justice Jackson. Fine. And so I think, yeah, uh, probably we'd all agree where she's a vote uh, against ISL um, theory. With purity and clarity and um, a very interesting methodological uh, com- a set of commitments that um, of a textualist and original sort that in this case are also, I think, very strongly supported by all the precedents. Yeah. So do you see any, any, um, any air, any gap, any distance between her and, let's say, justices? Uh, Kagan and Sotomayor on this? I I doubt between her and Justice Sotomayor. I think they seem to be in about the same place. Um, And at the end of the day, I suspect that will be true of Justice Kagan as well. Although, as Akhil just alluded to, she was one of the people during the argument who seemed to be at least engaging with what some kind of compromise or middle position would look like. Although late in the three hours, I thought she had this very illuminating colloquy with uh, Don Verrilli that seemed to highlight how difficult in practice 
anything like the kind of standard that Katyal offered, this kind of high, maybe even stratospherically high um, standard of review by which you know federal courts or the Supreme Court would review state court interpretation or you know, state court involvement in any fashion with the regulation of federal elections so that the elections clause would be understood to give some special role to the federal courts to enforce you know, Article 1, Section 4, you know, even as against state actors in order to protect state legislatures. As preposterous as that sounds to me when I articulate it, that was what they were saying. The federal constitution either permitted or required. It was just a question of how to formulate it. And again, I think Justice Jackson from the jump said, no, 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 that's wrong. That is just so wrong. Um, But I think that Kagan seemed to be indulging the potential correctness of it and figuring out what the standard would look or sound like. Um, But then, and then to return to this colloquy with Don Verrilli, she said, but... We've been talking about, okay, maybe we get involved if a state court has basically ceased to function as a court, ceased to function in a judicial capacity and is doing pure policymaking. Maybe that's the place the elections clause, you know, empowers us to step in. And she said, but that's that that seems like a really difficult standard, in part because all of us on this bench and on maybe every bench has occasionally accused a colleague on the other side of a case of behaving in a non-judicial fashion or of engaging in pure policymaking. So if that's the standard, it's kind of going to be in the eye of the beholder. And to kind of return to your point, Akhil, about just kind of how correctly understood state courts actually can do kind of anything a state constitution empowers them to do. I mean, state courts do engage in policymaking. They are yes. common law courts yes. in a way the federal courts yes. are not. Here, they don't have to be. Yes. Yes. And that's, yes. But that's not true in the, in the state courts, right? That's so that this is what they, so the state courts rightly understood. No, no, I, I'm, I'm talking about the, yeah. the, the part of Erie. Erie says yeah. there's no fe- general federal common federal law, but common it actually law, yeah. says explicitly that whether a state makes its policy through a, a statute in its legislature or through um, a court in common law fashion is not a matter of federal interest. Federal, it actually yes. goes out of its way to say state courts are allowed to be policy makers of a certain sort. So Precisely. Kate, so our audience should know, Kate and, and Andy and I did not pre-rehearse this conversation, but I think you and we heard the very same things in the very same way. And in our last episode, Andy, just to remind the audience, we explain what the proper standard should be. And it's basically if a court, a state court is acting utterly lawlessly, at a certain point, that raises due process concerns of, of uh, generality and prospectivity and fair notice and all the rest. But if that's the test, it would be the same for a state legislative um, uh, uh, districting um, a law or uh, a law regulating state gubernatorial elections or, or, or um, state elections for dog catcher, for that matter, as for the federal. And, and, and that would be. Um, a very unusual thing indeed for the U.S. Supreme Court to second guess a state court, even on an issue of state election law as applied to state elections. Yeah, but in an, in a sufficiently radical and extreme scenario, due process already supplies a hook, right? And so, what we think is the test is due process. Yes. And that's right. And that's already that's already in our law. So what the court is talking about here is fashioning something different. And that has to be by virtue of the elections clause. And so then again, we are just haggling over the details. And that strikes me as a very dangerous place to be. And we're going to come back to this because I think the person who actually most clearly said that before KBJ and before Amar Amar and Calabresi and our amicus brief and, and Amar and Amar in some articles and Amar himself um, in, a, in a lecture he gave a long time. But the person who most clearly said this is your, yes, is your former boss, John Paul Stevens, in the Bush versus Gore case, which I hope we're going to come back to because I think he said it, he saw it with distinctive clarity, and he was right. Um, and we didn't quite hear his name reverentially invoked in the courtroom the way we heard William Rehnquist's name reverentially mentioned a whole bunch of times. And, and Kate, you and I don't always agree on stuff, but I think on this stuff, we are peas in a pod. Um, but I think you made a very interesting point about uh, Justice Kagan there, Kate. So you're, you're right, I think, to point out this space between, or this daylight between Justice Kagan and possible. I mean, maybe it'll go away by the time they, they write the opinions. But that's a very interesting point. I still can't see her coming out endorsing. But, uh, yeah, but. I mean, I think, it, yeah, I, I think she has been 
quite strategic in joining, and this is not true in every area of law, and I think it's particularly been true in some like religious liberty cases, but she has been willing to kind of join, maybe Fulton. even forge. Yeah. No, but uh, but I, I mean, thinking back about Trinity Lutheran, um, so, and, and Masterpiece Cake Shop, and, you know, cases in which she, and those were sort of distinct, but she, in both instances, sided with religious liberty claimants. And, you know, there's this sort of wrinkle in Masterpiece Cake Shop. It's not a big wholehearted endorsement of the Jack Phillips position. But I think in both cases, she votes in sort of surprising ways, probably because these compromise positions seemed like kind of, you know, less bad outcomes um, than something the conservative majority would have arrived at without her kind of moderating presence. Um, and I don't know yet whether that's going to be a tactic that she deploys with this kind of really, you know, newly constituted court and, you know, Justice Jackson on board. And because, you know, I, I'm just I, I'm just not sure um, if that's something we're going to see from her this term. Um, but I could imagine if there was a, you know, a, a, a group that wanted to do some bigger, bolder potentially more dangerous version of the ISLT. And then a group, you know, of Justice Kavanaugh, maybe the Chief Justice, um, you know, that says something kind of moderate. And then, the, the you know, then Sotomayor and Jackson, you know, are sort of join with them enough to at least raise questions about what the governing laws, which is not a great place to go into the 2024 election cycle, you know, kind of against the backdrop of, but if she was able to, to to join with Roberts and Kavanaugh to deprive an Alito, Gorsuch, Thomas trio um, of another, you know, vote or two for something bigger, and then and then we, you know, do have a three, four, two or something vote breakdown. That seems entirely possible, really suboptimal, but I could imagine a calculation that that is preferable to a six, three, you know, moderate to large embrace of ISLT. So so I, I this is one where I think a lot will likely be worked out in the writing and, and the negotiation after the argument. Um, so I think that's probably ongoing right now. Um, but, I, but I can't see that Jackson or Sotomayor engaging in any such negotiation. It seems quite clear to me where they are and Kagan, I'm just less sure. Okay. How about the biggest ones of all? Because you know, we got to get to five. So you mentioned Thomas in passing, but especially um, Robert's and Kavanaugh, because you know, yeah. with Roberts, you often get Kavanaugh. Um, Kavanaugh votes with Roberts oh, more than 95% of the time. So, uh, And maybe some people thought Kavanaugh coming in was more sympathetic to ISL than some of us you know, might have liked. What was your take about those two in particular and whether you saw any possibility of Justice Thomas ch- changing his, his mind from um, his Bush versus Gore days? Right. And of course, he was both, you know, in the, you know, the five justice majority, the procurium opinion, but also joined the Rehnquist concurrence that is sort of, you know, lurked in the background and sometimes the foreground of both this case and in the oral argument. Um, and then Kavanaugh, obviously not, you know, on the court or a judge at that time, um, but a pretty active member of the Bush legal team. Um, and so I think going in, we, we, we all thought that those two, uh, oh, Kavanaugh was, you know, in some of these concurrences on the shadow docket in the run up to 2020, seemed less all in on the ISLT than Gorsuch and Thomas and Alito did. Um, so I, I I don't know yet. I don't I think Roberts remains difficult to read at oral argument. Um, and I think that he certainly was pretty dismissive of, of an absolute absolutist position, or even the kind of um, a gubernatorial veto is okay, but the court involvement is not, you know, kind of again, procedure substance. Um, but you know, some court involvement might be okay if it's procedural, but not substantive. And some gubernatorial involvement might not be okay if it's substantive as opposed to procedural. This like line that Thompson was sort of seeking to draw um, seemed very unconvincing to Roberts. Um, Thompson yet, being the lawyer, the lawyer for I, I, the ISLT position. Sorry, that's right. Um, and so, and so, because I think that neither neither Roberts nor Kavanaugh seemed to me to be satisfied by the options before them. Um, and so that, I suppose, is why it seems possible to me that they're going to try to write something different. And then it's a question of whether it's, you know, there's a 3-2-3 three, three vote breakdown or, you know, a 3-4-2 um, vote breakdown or something like that. I mean, it's it, it, this could be a case where you just, you know, you you don't have five votes for any 
for certainly for any written opinion. And then it's a question of how to kind of, you know, add votes for particular propositions of law. Um, and I said this before, but I think it really bears repeating. I think that would be a really dangerous place to go into, you know, a 2024 election cycle, um, you know, litigating an untested standard, maybe one that the court hasn't even coalesced around. So an untested standard that litigants can frame in all kinds of different ways if they're seeking, you know, to challenge, again, whether we're talking about sort of a congressional race in 2024 or, you know, sort of the big question of a presidential um, electors. Um, I think that in either instance, this could be part of the reason I think that a lot of people have been so concerned. I mean, you two obviously uh, included about this case is um, you know, it's a it's a fascinating and important set of constitutional and you know kind of structural questions, um, but it also has the potential. You know, not that the court is going to announce in this opinion that democracy is done, but that through its implementation, it could have you know really really destructive consequences. And I actually think a fractured opinion is one way that this that that could all play out. But it seems to me, especially as I kind of talk through the potential votes with the two of you, like a very real possibility. You know, the um, if you look at Justice Roberts and, and Justice Kavanaugh, you might say, well, what evidence do we have that they that they might vote a particular way? In the case of Justice Robert, Chief Justice Roberts, you know, we have his his dissent in Arizona, but then he turns around in Rucho and seems to uh, say, okay, this is this issue is settled, and then he starts off, you know, the oral argument basically ripping the substantive procedural distinction apart saying well you know the governor vetoes it that's substantive so um so there's that and then yeah he's playing around with the with the line we had to draw the line you know and this and that but but you know i don't see that much evidence frankly you know other than that uh for him as a vote for for isl um so that's that's him and then just to yeah i'd, I'd like to hear you on that but also let me just give you my, my thought on Kavanaugh. Um, of course. So you, you mentioned correctly that his some of his shadow docket votes would seem to indicate a certain disdain for, for ISL theory, although he had one that went the other way. But then he, then he turned around, and then after that he was consistent. Um, and during the oral argument, he asked the uh, Tom, uh, attorney Thompson, what is your best case for the substantive procedural? And he comes, he says, you know, Palm Beach. And so... So and then Justice Kavanaugh says, didn't say anything, you know. So, um, so and and neither does and and then he says, well, the, okay, Bush versus Gore concurrence is well. Does substantive and procedural appear in that concurrence? No. So and that was most of what he asked in the in the oral argument. So that would be evidence on one side, I think. What do you what do you see on the other side? Well, I, I think that Kavanaugh, just the raw number, I don't have it in front of me, but he mentioned the Rehnquist concurrence a number of times. And at one point said, you seem to be going further than the Rehnquist concurrence to, again, Thompson, the uh, the, the advocate for the uh, for the proponent of the ISLT. And to my mind, that seemed to signal, well, I am comfortable with a, with the Rehnquist concurrence. I'm just not sure about going further. And that, that that's significant. Um, and then to come back to the Chief Justice for a moment, um, I think it's right. I mean, I read his majority opinion finding these, you know, challenges to partisan gerrymanders, non-justiciable in, in Rucho versus Common Cause, um, I read some of the language in that opinion as very clearly as I think you just suggested, Andy, signaling the, that, you know, from the perspective of the Supreme Court, it is settled that states can pursue alternative mechanisms to check partisan gerrymanders. It's just that federal courts are not the venue for hearing those claims, but that, you know, state, whatever a state wants to do to address this problem, which... Roberts repeatedly conceded was a serious problem. Um, the federal, you know, the Supreme Court is not going to intercede to thwart that. So that is, I think, the, the right way, from my perspective, to read that language in Rucho. But there was some question about it. And there was one thing that made me kind of nervous that the Chief Justice said, which was, well, you know, state court relying on like a free or fair, uh, a free elections clause or a fair elections clause, that sounds to me like the kind of stuff we were very worried about in Rucho, that it's very difficult to find a principled and administrable standard uh, for courts to enforce based on that kind of really broad and open-ended constitutional language. So it seems like he was almost suggesting, you know, exporting the logic of Rucho in some way that I didn't even quite understand how it would, how this would operationally work um, to, but accept that maybe it signaled some receptivity to this argument that what the elections clause should mean is that state courts do get to have a role 
it's not the substance procedure distinction exactly, but it's that this is this theory that Alito floated on the shadow dock in 2020, but that state courts may be able to, you know, interpret or enforce specific or clear state constitutional provisions, but not vague or broad or open-ended ones. So that seemed to me like kind of signaling some receptivity to that line, even if not to the substance procedure line. Kotchel, I thought, was incredibly effective in responding when he said, no, no, but that's just because you were worried about being able to, you know, superintend the, the processes in 50 states. The, none of those concerns are well-founded if we're talking about state courts' ability to interpret their own constitutions. It's just in that single state, it's a totally different scenario. So I thought he was great in response, but the question made me nervous. So that's, I think, where I'm seeing, you know, some potential openness, at least, to some version of this theory on the part of the Chief Justice. And, and maybe it's just because I'm an optimist. Um, I actually heard that same thing, and I agreed with you that it could be read pessimistically or interpreted pessimistically. I thought it was actually pretty much a, a, a softball um, right down the, the plate so that Neil could not get out of the park. And, and he did. And I'm not, it wouldn't be shocking to me that Roberts knew that Neil had a very good answer to that very obvious question, and he wanted to give Neil a chance to make that answer more for the point uh, for the benefit of, of of some of his colleagues than um, for himself. I, I that that's a great reading, Akil. I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I am an optimist. <laughs> okay, and so so I think we've gotten you know your sense of pretty much all the justices. Didn't say much of Justice Thomas, but I think. Uh, that that itself spoke volumes there. So, um, all right. So let's let's move on then uh, to I think what you know we've we've alluded to a few times, which is this this uh, discussion about Bush versus Gore. So um, we referred to in our podcast the, that we were concerned about the or Akil in particular because he's absolutely fixated on this going for twenty years. Um, the, the, I think obsessed is the word. Yes. <laughs> The, the normalization. I, and, and, and unlike Justice Scalia, I've just never gotten over it. Because mm-hmm. um, Justice Scalia always used to say when people asked him about Bush versus Gore, get over it. I have never gotten over it. Right. Well, and and so this this normalization of Bush versus Gore, as you said on your strict scrutiny podcast, um, the court has really avoided discussion of this, of this case. Uh, I guess you couldn't avoid it here. Um, but... They made no effort to, certainly. Um, what do you think was going on there? Um, you know, how, how ominous is this? And is it possible that just if ISL, if this case comes out the way that I think the three of us think it should come out, that's the end of it? The end of Bush versus the, Gore. The, the sort of short, short-lived rehabilitation right. of Bush versus mm-hmm. Gore. Yeah. And I mean, just to respond to what you were saying, Akil, about, you know, you not getting over it, I think that many, many people never did, still haven't gotten over Bush versus Gore for, for very different reasons. And I know it's it's certainly right that Justice Scalia, when he was asked about it, would say, get over it. But I'm not sure that meant that he was over it. I think it just was a, a, an acknowledgement of the fact that many, many people weren't. And I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I clerked there, so it was seven, eight years after um, Bush versus Gore. And it was still this kind of case that was, if not verboten to bring up, it just wasn't something that people really talked about. And I think for very different reasons, right? I think that Scalia and those um, in the majority understood how unhappy both their colleagues and many people in the public were about the court's intervention um, and substantive disposition of that case. And I think that, you know, I... It wasn't like verboten in the Stevens chambers, but again, we just you just sort of had the sense that it wasn't something that you really brought up. Um, and you know, but I can say from what you know, Justice Stevens wrote, and you you mentioned this earlier, Akil, right? You know, um, probably his most famous line from his dissent um, was something like, "Although we might never know who won the presidential election in Florida, it is perfectly clear who the loser is." And it was something like the public's confidence in this court as an impartial guardian of the rule of law. That's not verbatim, but it's close. Um, And I think that that lingered um, for all of the justices who were on the court during Bush versus Gore and the people in kind of the larger, you know, Supreme Court ecosystem. Um, And I think that the fact that the Supreme Court basically said, you know, ticket good for one ride only, and that everyone sort of heeded that. People didn't cite Bush versus Gore to them. Thomas did mention it in a a dissent um, uh, in... 2013, maybe. Um, But that's it. And it was very occasionally 
surfaced in you know lower court litigation and even relied upon, I think, in the Sixth Circuit once or twice. Um, but that's unusual for a significant Supreme Court opinion when there is as much election-related litigation as there is. And there's a very good reason that the court seemed uninterested in returning to it because sort of, you know, read in a really expansive way, you know, that such that any significant variation within a single state in the way an election was administered, votes cast, votes counted, sort of whatever, would have been completely fatal to our decentralized, you know, so a view of any such variation as an equal protection violation would have been totally fatal to our decentralized system of election administration. Um, and so I think that in an acknowledgement of that, everyone sort of agreed. There was this kind of like, you know, sort of explicit, sort of tacit agreement that we're just not going to talk about and we're just not going to cite this case. Um, and and it is interesting that it is not returning in this sort of equal equal protection guise. Um, it still, I think, has been now, it, it, it may, like it's very possible that if we're in another close, you know, election scenario in which there's a single state in which you can marshal a plausible argument that there's an equal protection problem based on the way the election is administered differently in one part of a state versus another, we could very well be back with the actual per curiam opinion being the focus. But of course, here we're talking about this argument that wasn't even, I think, discussed in the per curiam opinion, just in the Rehnquist concurrence, which was that in addition to the equal protection and due process problems with, you know, like standardless manual recounts as the court described them, there was this separate elections clause problem. So we were just talking about that. And it is, you know, it is curious to me that it's returned in that guise. Um, but I do think it's, I, I, I don't know what it means about the, the, you know, resurrection, potentially, of the rest of Bush versus Gore in some future election dispute. Um, but, but it does, you know, look, there is now, obviously, this concerns a solid conservative supermajority. And to the extent that once upon a time, there it felt like everyone was a little, you know, People were both like traumatized and angry if they were on the losing side and somewhat sheepish about the public perception that this was simply a political power grab by, you know, a Republican majority, a majority of Republic appointed justices, although not all the Republican appointees, obviously Stevens uh, and Souter were on the other side of the case, um, that there, there no longer seems to be any hesitance to you know, bring up, potentially even embrace fully Bush versus Gorp. So just that's, to, yeah, please go ahead. Just to jump in on, on, on that, Kate. So you remind us all that William Rehnquist spoke for only three justices, himself, Justice Souter, just, himself, Justice Scalia, and Justice Thomas. That was not a majority opinion. So it's, it's not in any way, shape, or form binding that if one is going to cite a concurrence, I would say, well, why not? Um, which is what a lot of people in the courtroom were, the rank was concurrent. Why not, if we're doing, um, if we're actually going back, why not cite the dissent by John Paul Stevens? Because that was correct. And I want to, you know, our audience to know this, and I want you to hear it because, you know, I, uh, you clerked for Justice Stevens and I, um, and he said a lot of things that I actually um, don't quite agree with, but I think that was maybe his best decision ever. And there was a lot of time pressure and he nailed it. And he said three big things that I think um, were right then and are right today. One thing that he said just on the equal protection issue is there's a lot of um, variation because we have decentralized elections and we've never insisted on a perfect Chad uh, uh, uniformity standards down to the eighth decimal point. Um, and that's right. And another thing that he said is um, this ISL argument doesn't make any sense because there's no such thing as an independent state legislature. It's part of the state constitutional system. Just so that's the Akeel position. That's the KBJ position, actually. And it has a total conceptual clarity to it. And he said a third thing that was actually um, a possible off-ramp for the justices in Moore versus Harper. Almost no one talked about it. And that's that even if the state constitution doesn't apply of its own force, to federal elections, a state legislature could surely make the state constitution applicable, choose to make the state constitution applicable to federal elections the way it does apply of its own force to state elections on, on held on the same day and generally in the same way. I thought he was right on all three points, um, and it was an epically good decision. And if we're going to go back to Bush versus Gore, um, let's go back to that one. Amen. And yet it was not, it, it, it was not mentioned. And I think to the point, you know, to, to a point you made earlier, not 
there wasn't even really the spirit of it in any of the presentations from the three advocates arguing against the ISLT. Right, which was unfortunate because if we're going to talk about and and Andy, you and I talked about this on the last episode, um, not just what precedents are binding and the role of precedent, um, but even if it's not binding, um, you could choose to be persuaded. It, it has persuasive yeah. authority, and that in part turns on the intrinsic persuasiveness um, of the opinions themselves. But it's also in part about tipping the hat and honoring predecessors on the bench. And I don't think that the Rehnquist concurrence deserves all honor. And I do think the the Stevens dissent does deserve a lot of honor in the same way that today we honor John Marshall Harlan, the elders dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, In the same way that today, a lot of conservatives um, formalists and separation of powers honor the dissent by justice Scalia in the independent counsel case, the Morrison versus Olson case, not because it's the, in, in the court, it wasn't, he was alone in dissent, Scalia was, but because a lot of people, myself included, find a lot of things that he said there persuasive. And almost everyone on the court today says, oh, it, Plessy versus Ferguson, it's the dissent that we honor today and find persuasive and not the majority opinion. I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're going to say that um, in the Harvard and UNC cases, I am sure that dissent will get some play in the majority oh, uh, yes, opinion right. in invalidating the affirmative action policies of those universities. Which yes, it's be- become canonical. The dissent yes. has become canonical. Yes. 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 It's every it's every bit as canonical rhetorically. And mm-hmm. by canonical, I mean something that you, people cite, you know, for, um, as on their side. Right. And, 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 and people debate, oh, who, you know, side, you know, is the canonical uh, pronouncement really on whom does it favor brown is canonical you can't say brown was wrong you can say oh brown supports me one side says oh brown means colorblindness oh another side says no brown means integration the dissent in plessy one person alone john marshall harlan is canonical both sides want to claim it one side says oh the constitution is colorblind and another side says oh "Oh, no it's actually about an anti-caste principle which requires us to think about racial subordination Bush versus Gore, of course, as we said, it came from Justice Stevens, and that was before you uh, you were on the court. But of course, um, the, or you were, you were on you, the court as a clerk, as a clerk. Yes, yes. Well, you know, I'm thinking about it because there we are sitting in the in oral arguments, and uh, we're sitting really right next to the clerks. They're 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 right there, and they're they're scribbling notes away, you know, and that sort of thing. So uh, when you were when you were a clerk for Justice Stevens. What would you? What would your role be like during a case? Would you have a case assigned to you where you would, you know, be the primary point person for him? Or and if you're sitting there in oral arguments, you're a clerk. What What were you doing? Yeah. So so you you all were in the justices' seats, right? So the clerks would have been right behind you. Yeah. So you know you go to. I mean, in the Stevens chambers, we all went to every argument, and I think that some clerks would just the the lead clerk on the case because yeah you would have sort of primary responsibility for you know each case would have sort of one lead clerk um and the big cases there was a little bit more sort of team effort on citations and things like that but one person was always the lead or point person um and so uh, yeah in some chambers it was just like the lead clerk who would go but we loved going and so we all went to every argument um and yeah you would sit there you would scribble furiously i mean justice stevens very famously was quite famously and actually was quite self-sufficient. So he, I think, needed less from his clerks than other justices did and do. And so he didn't want bench memos, like a, you know, a, a, a short distillation of the party's briefs and a recommendation. Um, he, you know, kind of did his own preparation. We would, of course, read everything, organize our own thoughts, sit with him before the oral argument, um, sometimes actually just the morning of, because, you know, sometimes in the winter, he'd be coming back from Florida because he would travel back and forth a good amount. So we would sit down, you know, a couple hours before the oral argument and talk through um, the cases. You know, he would have all of his, the briefs and his amicus briefs, the ones that we thought were important, we would send him. And sometimes they would like have sand in the creases because he would have been reading them on the beach. Um, <laughs> but uh, so we would sit and, and, and discuss and then he would go um, and always ask just amazing and penetrating questions. Um, and um, and then, you know, after, af- typically after the conference, after the justices had discussed the cases, we would we would sit and, and, and debrief both, you know, what he had said and what other justices had said. Um, but in terms of during the actual argument, which, you know, never lasted three hours when I was a clerk there, it was um, I was there in the early days of the Roberts Court. So I think he was still a little bit more um, 
working in the kind of mold of Chief Justice Rehnquist, for whom he had clerked, who was like really rigid about advocates sticking to time and cut people off not only mid-sentence, but mid-word when their time expired. Um, and so Roberts is a little stricter than than he is now, um, uh, although, you know, still not quite as strict as Rehnquist. Um, but yeah, we would take notes and um, and sort of try to get a sense of where the other justices were um, and then, you know, return to chambers and wait to talk uh, to the justice and, you know, talk to other clerks to some degree, but typically we would want to check in with our uh, justice first. And just to remind the audience, they've heard several names mentioned, justices, many of whom themselves were law clerks back in the day, including John Stevens himself was a law clerk many years before he became a justice. And so was William Rehnquist, um, who clerked for, I think, um, uh, I think Stevens clerked for Riley, maybe. and um, Wiley Rutledge, yeah, Wiley Rutledge. Rutledge. A a wonderful but not long-serving. I think he was only on the court for five or six years, yeah. And uh, Rehnquist clerked um, for um, the other Justice Jackson, Justice Robert Jackson. And um, in turn, Chief Justice Roberts clerked for Rehnquist, um, and Tenji Brown Jackson clerked for Breyer, who actually um, clerked for Goldberg. I, I, I clerked for Breyer, but not on the Supreme Court, so I don't know how any of this stuff works. Um, and Kate does. Because, listen, our audience should know that Kate could be on the court. You know, she's she's got the, she's got the credentials. She's shaking in her a way head. No, that, no, no, no. Know, I'm, that, I'm absolutely that, unconfirmable and the, happily so. So. Um, okay. Well, like, po- podcasting is not great for confirmation prospects, but you know what? There's always a quote. I'm I'm happy with my choices. (laughs) That's right. Well, speaking of podcasting, um, you know, your, your podcast is, as you say, maybe, maybe you're unconfirmable because so many people listen to your podcast. So, uh, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? First of all, you know, it's a, a lot of work. I, I know that. Um, and a, a lot of time. Because Andy does it all on this one. <laughs> so, um, you know, you've chosen to spend, you know, a significant percentage of your time on this. Um, what are your what are your goals in doing that? Why why did you start doing it? Um, and, you know, why do you do it now? And do, are you achieving, do you think, what you're what you're hoping to with it? This got sort of deep there, Andy. Um, I, you know, <laughs> what is the I meaning we, of your life? What are, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to offer a few thoughts, right? So I co-host a podcast called Strict Scrutiny with Leah Lippman and Melissa Murray um, of Michigan and NYU, respectively. Um, and yeah, it's a weekly podcast. We try to kind of provide our analysis and opinion um, about the Supreme Court Um not only its docket, although we do spend a lot of time on the cases the court is hearing and deciding, um, but also its place in our constitutional democracy, the individuals who sit on it, the court as an institution. So um, so I think that we find value. I mean, we sort of launched the podcast because we thought there would be real value in a podcast that takes the court seriously and takes the law seriously, um, but doesn't look at it as this kind of disembodied institution handing down the law, capital L, like from on high, but also as an institution populated by individuals, and that those would also be the kind of objects of our interest and discussion and analysis and not just the opinions that the court hands down. Um, And, you know, I think that it is an institution that sort of by design, um, and I think Akhil, you and I have maybe disagreed about this in the past, but, it, you know, by design, I think it's a remarkably non-transparent institution. I think it is the least transparent institution in American public life. The justices love to say that's not true. We're the most transparent because you can just read our opinions and we tell you show you our work and our reasoning. And, and you know, at the moment, actually, that's not at all true all the time. The court is increasingly issuing orders that don't even have reasons accompanying them, sometimes in the most consequential and high stakes cases, including death penalty cases. Um, and so I actually think that sort of by its own lights, the court is falling quite short on these transparency metrics. Um, but as a general matter, I think that, you know, we having sort of clerked in and studied the court for years, my, my co-host and I, um, can do can help I think do some of the work of kind of demystifying um, and making somewhat transparent sort of the the work of the court and the justices. I'm um, also doing it with a perspective that centers dynamics of gender and race and power um, in ways that we sort of found sometimes lacking from Supreme Court 
you know, opinion and analysis. Um, and so I think those are th- some of the reasons that we launch the podcast and some of the reasons that we do the podcast. Um, are we succeeding? I'm sure we're failing every single week, um, but because we have very high standards for ourselves and it's, you know, we have a reasonably, you know, we, we have a good number of listeners at this point and I think they're a pretty um, kind of wonderfully diverse group. And so calibrating the level of detail, such that it's really, you know, valuable and interesting to real experts and also accessible to people who aren't lawyers um, or, you know, live in the world that we live in, like in terms of being in and around the Supreme Court. Um, I'm not sure that we, you know, pitch our conversations at the right level. And, you know, every week, I'm sure we don't. But that at least is the effort. And it has been... um, it has been a great pleasure to collaborate with Leah and Melissa, who are both really extraordinary people and scholars. Um, and um, and it's been gratifying, but it's very much a work in progress. So let me pick up on one thing that was amazing. It's a hard question. It's a pointed question. So um, we hear a lot about diversity everywhere um, on the Supreme Court, in the Academy. You use the phrase wonderfully diverse. So here's the hard question. Is your audience, do you think it's ideologically diverse? Are there conservatives who are part of your target audience? And how do you think about um, ideological diversity along with uh, some of the other um, issues of diversity? You mentioned, you mentioned gender and race and mentioned power, um, the diversity between those who have power and, and those who don't. And, and I think there, there are other axes that, that probably immediately spring to many people's minds when they think about um, diversity. Um, but what about ideological diversity and in particular conservatives of various flavors? Um, are they part of your community or not? All comers are welcome from the perspective of our audience. Um, we have occasionally been criticized for not having conservative guests on the pod, and it's true, we haven't. Um, I would say that I would never rule out our doing so in the future for the right conversation and with the right guest. Um, we're not probably going to seek a conservative just for the sake of seeking a conservative. Um, if, you know, most of the cases that we um cover, I mean, we cover sort of a broad range of cases. Um, But our general perspective is this is something we are doing on top of sort of busy day jobs. And life is too short to raise our blood pressure to the level that it would probably (laughs) be elevated to um, if we were to have someone with whom we deeply and profoundly disagreed on the podcast on a case like Dobbs or Bruin. Um, Again, I would not rule it out. And there are plenty of conservatives in all of our daily lives and our faculties. um, And welcome their views in print and in meetings um, and uh, in all other uh, fora. Um, And I, again, wouldn't rule it out, but I think that those are the sort of reasons that if that's actually at the heart of your question, Akhil, that's probably why we haven't had conservative guests on the podcast. But um, but I know that we have conservatives who listen to us. Often they really hate our podcast, so I think it's a hate listen. Um, but I think not exclusively. Um, and I think that there are, you know, other podcasts and obviously other, you know, sort of fora written and otherwise where conservative voices are, you know, absolutely elevated. Um, but, you know, you choose sort of what voices to elevate. And and I think that we've made the choices that we've made to elevate the voices that we have elevated. And we're really actually proud of the guest roster that we've had over the past three years. We've had a really extraordinary sure. group of guests on and we'll continue to have on. Sure. And that's, that's great. I mean, you know, I would say that one reason that Kiel may bring this up, we had some a podcast recently where we talked actually to people um, from the Federalist Society, um, people, that, uh, students um, at, at, at Yale Law School. Um, and it was interesting because, I mean, Nikhil and I are both Democrats um, and, uh, you know, and we're both pro-choice, you know, um, you know personally, politically. Um, but, uh, you know, it was interesting to talk to, to, to them and they were saying that the, the more progressive students refused to debate them. They don't, they don't meet with them, they don't debate them, they don't come to their meetings, they don't invite them, nothing. And this is at a law school where you would think, you know, you might have uh, some exposure to <laughs> advocacy. But um, anyway, so I, I think that's a problem. Um, so uh, here's, a, here's a suggestion. Um, you know, we're not, uh, you know, on the right, we're not crazy, you know, we're, um, but on, on occasion, um, Akil may be on a different side from you guys on one issue or another, you know, um, maybe let's let's pick an issue um, where we can have a reasonable disagreement as opposed to, you know, let's say a passionate one and uh, and have a joint podcast, maybe with a live audience. 
and have a have a have a debate or something like that. Um, something where where it won't raise our blood pressure, but where we can educate the public and have civic discussion. No, I did not put Andy up to this. <laughs> I didn't know he was going to say this, but if you wanted to do it, Kate, great. Well, I can't. I couldn't possibly commit without consulting with my illustrious co-hosts. Um, right. But I thought I think it would be fun anyway. Okay, but so. Andy, here, here's here's my variant of of your question, which is. Um, We've had conservatives open and avowed on the podcast and Ed Whalen of, from the National Review. We've had lots of liberals, uh, you know, Linda Greenhouse. And, um, and, you know. uh, I mean, so many. Um, mm-hmm. Gary Hart. Um, um, so, so, so many. Neil. Um, mm-hmm. um, of course. But I for this podcast and again, different podcasts are trying to do different things. And it's actually really fun to, to, to talk about what, what you're trying to do, how similar it is to what we're trying to do, how different it, it at times might be. We're trying actually um, to sometimes persuade conservatives. Um, we're, we want them to actually not, not just, you know, outrage them or own them. Um, we want conservative clerks to listen to um, our our pod, as you, as you would say, and because they control the court. Um, and, you know, there, there are six Republican appointees and three Democratic appointees. So, and that may not change for a while. Um, so we're trying not just to analyze and report and to energize, but sometimes to influence and to influence the folks who are in charge. And right now, the folks who are in charge in general are the conservatives on the court. Yeah. No, that's not wrong. And I think that there's, look, there's space in the ecosystem that surrounds the Supreme Court for people with a bunch of different projects and perspectives. I think that it's a diverse ecosystem and there is space for individuals using the podcast platform and other platforms to pursue lots of different objectives. And I think that's a great one. Um, I think it's hard for me to see how we could sincerely and staying true to our kind of legal commitments pursue that in a way that felt authentic. Um, but but it's not to discredit it at all. It's just not our project as I understand it. And Leah and Melissa might say something a little bit different. And certainly if we're persuading anyone, um, I hope people come to the podcast with an open mind. Um, and, you know, we have our views, but also those views can be challenged and sometimes they do change. Um, so changing minds is wonderful and, and, and it would be great. But, I, but I, I, I can say, at least from my perspective, that we don't sit down and set ourselves the goal of trying to persuade clerks to the conservative justices, although you're right about where the power center on the court is. And that is without question an important objective. Right. Well, and I, I also think that, you know, it's good for the country, you know, to have some civic discourse uh, one way or the other. Um, and sure, you could listen to, you know, a liberal podcast, listen to a conservative podcast, and then make up your mind. But I think that uh, sometimes when arguments, you know, come together, and sometimes you can find common ground, and, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to be gained, you know, from that kind of thing, especially if it's done with people of good faith that respect each other. So I can understand why you might not want to have, you know, some crazies, you know, on, on your podcast and then have the, but I, I think that uh, if you can find people you respect, then that's a different story. And uh, so I think sometimes Andy, for, for, for example, we asked our friend Nadine Strassen way back when, you know, whom she's willing to debate and be on a platform with and, and whom she's not, that's really interesting. There's some people we will not have on this because I don't want to give them a platform. I, I would not today give John Eastman um, a platform because I, um, uh, uh, but there are other people, but, uh, but, but Ed Whalen, yes. John Eastman, no. Um, so everyone's going to have, you know, they're going to draw the line in, in, in different places. Um, and um, because we're tr- maybe trying to do slightly different things, but also overlapping in similar things in other respects. Well, this is great. I mean, we, we could go on and on and on, and, and uh, hopefully people don't think we're going on and on and on. But, uh, but uh, we do need to wrap it up because Kate is uh, very busy. And, uh, and she's been very generous. Thank yes. you, you know, so much, you know, Kate. I do, for, I do for want to give her uh, – well, I do want to ask one more question, though, which, um, you know, we were – before the podcast, we were chatting about uh, what happened this week with the uh, January 6th commission, and we're going to be talking about that. Um, ourselves uh, after Kate leaves or in subsequent podcasts, but uh, behind her back, of course. And um, Although she's always welcome back. Yes. Thank you. Standing, standing invitation. But Thank you. Um, you, you had an interesting thought about actually a relationship between what the January 6th commission did this week um, in issuing uh, 
referrals to the Justice Department and its report and so forth, um, and the Moore versus Harper case. So uh, maybe you'd like to share that with our audience. Sure. And I haven't yet had a chance to say this on my own podcast. Um, but right. I oh, good. So we can scoop you. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we're going to feature on Instagram. You know, very, come here first. <laughs> um, so it's a very small scoop, but I think it's, I think there is a relationship between the two um, in that underlying, you know, so there were these you know, four separate referrals um, that the committee made to the Department of Justice, one having to do with obstruction, one with, you know, fraud in the United States, one insurrection. But I think as to two of these suggested charges, obstruction and fraud, kind of central was not just sort of the events on January 6th itself, but the sort of entirety of this or these fake elector schemes in which individuals convened in state capitals, they were these kind of, you know, self-appointed or self-styled Trump electors, they purported to cast, you know, completely legally baseless, um, groundless electoral votes for Trump, and then in some instances, transmitted to Congress documents that purported to be elector certificates. And that is, you know, kind of central to at least a couple of these charges that the committee, you know, is, of course, just suggesting that the Department of Justice consider or pursue. And it strikes me that at the heart of this idea, at the heart of this whole scheme, is something closely related to the kind of core argument in Moore versus Harper, which is that state legislatures have a special role to play both in regulating congressional elections and in setting the manner of appointing electors, and that the you know the provisions of the Constitution of you know the original Constitution and the Twelfth Amendment, and then also the Electoral Count Act that set up this procedure in which the votes are open. Uh, opened and tallied with the vice president presiding, that there was, you know, there's, there is a constitutional idea, plausible or implausible, sort of at the heart of all of this, which is that, you know, you could somehow, I think this is the Eastman theory, so far as I understand it, you could create enough uncertainty in some states that that would justify state legislatures, right, stepping in and appointing electors outright, or would justify the vice president simply refusing to count electoral votes from one or more Biden states, um, thus, you know, changing the denominator um, from which the president is selected. Um, but that all of these feel like incredibly outlandish theories. And in isolation, the idea that a group of private citizens would get together and forge a document that purported to be, you know, an elector certificate seems crazy. But in the context of some idea that there was something improper about the way the state had conducted its elections, that the legislature actually had the power and maybe even the duty to step in and correct whatever, you know, election irregularities had occurred, and that somehow these certificates or these kind of this scheme was part and parcel of such an effort that was really about, again, kind of grounding the role or centering the role of the state legislature. It just strikes me that any Supreme Court support for some version of an ISLT could be marshaled by the individual's like John Eastman, like Donald Trump, identified by Congress in these referrals. So those potential defendants could basically formulate an argument that at least points to some supporting language from a Supreme Court opinion that says this whole idea that legislatures can, you know, play some special role in federal elections isn't far-fetched. In fact, it has some support from one or two or three or four justices of the Supreme Court, and that that is exonerating in the context of this fake elector scheme. I don't know. It seems to me as though the court here could say things that could thwart pursuit of at least this subset of charges that Congress has identified, which again, the Justice Department may not pursue anyway. But if it does, Moore versus Harper actually strikes me as not irrelevant to the way those cases might be argued. And so I just wanted to make that point, since you're now going to pivot to talking about the Jan 6 referrals. You could also see that coming up at a disbarment hearing, for that matter. Absolutely. So, uh, Kate, maybe just to paraphrase what you said, you're a criminal defense attorney, let's say an Alan Dershowitz type, and you're going to say, how can you put my client, John Eastman, in prison, you know, um, for um, advancing a theory, a version of which was persuasive to um, one or two or three or four um, justices on, on the Supreme Court, or put slightly differently, 
you know, I, w- I would try to argue it the other way for the Supreme Court because they're still deciding and the clerks are still out there. Right. Um, John Eastman's craziness is just a particularly extreme version of ISL theory as applied to the executive branch. It's ISL on steroids. And, and, ooh, you don't, if you're an ISL person, you should not want John Eastman as your bedfellow. Um, you know, the person who took the pure ISL position in Moore versus Harper in an amicus brief was named Professor John Eastman. Um, and, um, so, oh, you should think very carefully and then very carefully again before you want to get anywhere near any of that. Um, that's spinning it the other way. But I think that's that's in some ways even more constructive right now. So, but yes, I do think that the two that it has to be noted or acknowledged that these two actually are quite related. And so, so that's right. It's either so 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 maybe that's more constructive. But as the justices and their clerks are deliberating, what they're going to do here, any embrace of any version of this theory is moving you quite close to the position taken by John Eastman. And I think it's right that they should bear that in mind. Yes. Okay. Beware. So look, I've joined you in trying in trying to speak to the conservatives. Yes. 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 Well done. Come on in. But, the water's fine. Why you not? See, you can do this. Why not? It's good. It's good for the country, right? You know, right, that's well, good. Let's, well, let's, I'm let's, dabbling let's, a little bit. Let's get reason out there. Okay. Well, this is great. So, thank you so much, Kate Shaw, and uh, you know, hope maybe we'll uh, do something with uh, strict scrutiny. You know, at some day in the future, uh, who knows. But, this uh, was great. And, and of course, we'd, we'd love to have you back, you know, in the future. Thank you so All much. All right. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Akil. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you.